Welcome to another episode of the Billion Dollar Broker. I am joined by an amazing woman who's been in the industry for a long, long time. Uh, Mari McLeod, welcome to the Billion Dollar Broker podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a bit exciting and flattering to um, be on the podcast as well. Yeah, well, you've had an amazing uh, career. You know, we were chatting, started in the industry, similar time. You've been in the industry 24 years. You're the director of Astute Ability Finance Group, uh, the sole director there. You've had the honour of being named in the top 100 uh, of the, the global um, figures within the industry over the last couple of years, 2020 and 2021. And you also took out, you know, the biggest award at the AMAs a couple of years ago as Broker of the Year. So you mentioned to me uh, just before recording that you've just been announced as the first woman vice president on the uh, equipment and commercial format forum for the MFAA as well. So uh, amazing career. Um, looking forward to unpacking this and you know, adding lots of value. But um, tell me, you know, way back then in 1998, how did you get started you know, back then in the, in, in the industry? I'm sure a few industry um, people have heard this story before because I've been asked this a couple of times. So I was studying criminal psychology and um, I needed to earn an income as well. So I decided uh, sales was for me and I ended up in a motor dealership selling aftermarket. Now that lasted nine weeks and I thought, well, I think I can do a little bit more than this. What else can I do? And, and I was watching the finance F&I manager running around so disorganised and I thought, well, if you bring some organisation into this role, I'm sure I'm going to kick ass. So I said, I want your job. I want to play in this space. Teach me. And I worked every weekend uh, for four or five years, 11-day fortnights, 64 and a half hours a week. So I put a lot of effort in to learn that space. And so, yeah, I ended up dumping the criminal psychology, stayed with the motor trade and, and made some really good money and, and made some really wise choices during that period. And after a, a major burnout, um, if you can imagine, doing 64 hours a week and 11-day fortnights, there wasn't much time left for me. And I had a year's salary in the bank and I thought, who's going to let me sell their money? So um, I will call them out. ANZ and Macquarie Bank did. And I started selling their product uh, with using somebody else's floor plan as well. And that's how a suitability group was born. And back then, everything was based around, so this is the velocity of change that we'll talk about later. So back then, I needed to find something that started with an A so that I was up there in the yellow pages. So I, um, I, I chose a studentability group with AA, obviously. And, um, yeah, my career started as self-employed at 24, door knocking, knocking on um, different dealerships, doors, different uh, yellow goods, dealers wanting to sell their second and third tier lending to a point and uh, build a business based on that. Amazing, right? So you put the hard work in, you know, it started with the hard work, getting the business off the ground, doing, as you said, 64 hour weeks, uh, um, days and, um, and yeah, 11, 11 days out of 14. And then obviously, you know, having the courage back then to say, hey, look, I'm going to go and do it myself so that takes a lot of courage for a 
24-year-old to, you know, to go out and say, all right, I'm going to do this. Across, there was plenty of tears driving to and from my little office, um, thinking, can I do another day in this, this space? Uh, it was very challenging. Um, I had lots of um, naysayers and those people telling me, what would I know? How, how, how do I stay in this space when you're not part of the team? because there was lots of things that I couldn't go to for obvious reasons, because it was, um, you know, different types of events and most of them were men. And it just didn't feel right if I was only one of two women going to those events. So it was very difficult to try and get into that space. But obviously as the men uh, that I worked with realised that, hey, I'm able to work in this space and do it very, very well, I got a lot of support. And from that, uh, the initial first two years weren't that supportive, but moving forward when they realised that, hey, I'm actually one of their competitors, if they don't want to, you know, help me along, they're going to start losing business. So we actually uh, joined in, in some way, whether it be me looking after certain deals that they couldn't and vice versa. I learned an awful lot in that first five-year period. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And so then, um, yeah, tell us how, because again, you know, talk about change. Back then you were door knocking, you were a true double A because you wanted to be the top of the, the white pages or the yellow pages. Um, and, you know, nowadays you think about how we acquire clients. and We had no email, we had no internet, and I was faxing one page at a time, thermal faxes. Mm. I mean, there's a whole generation that don't even know what a thermal fax is, but anyway. Yeah, I remember that. We didn't have even use a computer. I used to use a financial calculator. And so... Oh, that... <laughs> I've got mine here somewhere. Yeah, the Hewlett-Packard, yeah. That's the one. Yeah, Hewlett-Packard, yeah. HB10 or whatever it is. I use it today. Yeah, uh, I've I've got the version on my phone, the 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 ten the the ten B two on my phone, it's great. You know, we used to to sell using a financial calculator. We should bring that art back. Well, um, actually, my team, I, I I've taught a couple of my team members how to use the twelve C. Um, so I still use it today, and I think you know what, if my phone battery dies or my computer internet goes out at least i've got my trusty old 12c yeah exactly right exactly right so then talk about you know um moving on from that so that was in your first five years and then so how have you got from there and think of some of the milestones that you've been along the way and some of the challenges that you faced along the way to sort of get to where you are now being that sort of broker of of the year you know what's really interesting, Ross? We've had a lot of um, chatter around mortgage brokers diversifying. Well, I actually did it in the reverse because I came in as an asset broker. Anything with a serial number that um, could be listed, we would finance. So, But my business in that first three years started evolving where people were asking me, do you do mortgages? And I hadn't written a mortgage ever in my life. So it was a fast-track learning experience on, one, who do I write mortgages through? Two, how do I get um, accredited? So AFG was actually my first aggregator ever. So with AFG and the help of um, their team, I developed a mortgage broking arm, which had nine mortgage writers. Um, so by year five, mm. I was running a diversified business. So, and you're talking 20 years ago, 
So that was a big call. And I think one of the things I had on my side was, I wouldn't say ignorance, but I had the illusion of, you know what, I'm young. If it doesn't work out, try again or move it on. And fortunately for me, it worked out. And then I had the mortgage arm and the equipment commercial arm right up into maybe a year before GFC mm. um, and, and not being, I didn't have a crystal ball or anything, but it was time for me to sell my mortgage book, which I did do mm. prior to GFC. And I'm very thankful that I sold it at that period of time because then we had one of the world's biggest crashes, clearly, which wiped out at least six of my staff, which I had to let go. So, um, you know, again, there's, a, there's another significant change and the velocity of change and having, having the ability to um, go, well, you know what, the only thing I can change is what I'm doing. The only, I can't change what's happening globally but I can change what I'm doing. So what I, I, I spent the, um, the next probably first three months of uh, the global financial crisis, I got an accountant in and I got a, a, a business advisor in. They tore my business to pieces. We looked at where we could save. We looked at where we could grow. And then I peeled it right back just to asset. Mm. So I went back to what I knew best and I got through GFC. And then I had the best probably eight years after GFC Amazing. as we're coming out. So all these hard times that we've seen, I'm lucky after 20-something years, I've, I've, I've been able to go through a few of them and there is always light at the end of the tunnel. But it's, it, it's how you manage that in your own head and how you um, embrace that velocity of change with the challenges it comes with and, you know, I think as a business owner, those things are the, the, the biggest creators of growth. Yeah, I love it. And I, I'm always one that says opportunity comes from these times of adversity. I don't know, for us, similar uh, story where we banded a few different businesses together when Wizard was folding at the GFC and it really allowed us to you know, get a team of telemarketers in and just you know, we had our some of our best months during... Um, during those months. So for you, you mentioned you sort of just simplified your business. And I think this is um, this is a great lesson for people, you know, coming in times of, you know, the times that we're seeing now where, where the rates are going up and the market's shrinking a little bit, is to really simplify your business and to double down on what's working really well. So it sounds like you had advisors and people that you brought into the business at that point, which is another good thing to do at times like this, bring outside help in to help you. Um... And I think that helps, Ross, because you've got other people getting under the, the, the bonnet of your business to go, I know what I was doing, I know what worked, but things, I needed fresh ideas. And when you're a sole director, you can get those ideas outsourced. They come in, they consult, they help you work with it. It is character building, I will say, very character building. Because you've got to remember, you know, when we all start our own businesses, it's it, it, it's our little baby. But after a period of time, you've got an ego as well. You think, oh my God, I'm going to have to let six staff go. What are people going to think of me? Oh, my goodness, my business has changed. What are people going to think of me? Well, guess what? They're going to think that you're brave, you're business savvy, and you've got through the other end of it. So... If you take some of the ego out, 
which sometimes is very hard because, mm. you know, you built a business to a certain point and then you're having to reshuffle and change. But from my own personal um, point of view, once I got past that character building piece and, you know, letting go a little bit of ego, come on, we're all in this business, we've all got some form of ego, you just start working with what's been presented to you and, and start listening um, to little snippets of those who have been through it and, and what it looks like to make change. Change is character building granted. Yeah, love that. So the asset finance you worked out, obviously that's where you started. You worked out that's what your bread and butter was and that's what the most profitable um, part of your business was throughout the GFC. Um, so rather than be you know, uh, all things, you simplified the business and as you mentioned you had you probably you know some of your best years off the back of that right so had you not made those decisions you probably would have been spread too thin but you you made some real key decisions and you know same as when you walked out as that young girl as a 24 year old and started your your broking business this is another sort of character building sort of journey right so then tell me what happened, um, you know, from that point. So you you focused more on asset, and so what know. I did was I actually had to look at where um, the asset business was coming from. I had to have a, a real understanding of my client base, and building upon that client base, and not being fearful of asking for business. Now again, you got to remember we didn't have all the same technologies we've got now, so it was a lot of door knocking. There was a lot of phone conversations. There was a lot of getting in the car and, and meeting people. Probably one of my biggest and best business decisions I made was uh, during that time when I thought, well, where am I going to get scale? Where am I going to get the numbers to support this business? And, again, I think I had more front than Myers. And I, I, I decided one day I'm going to contact Oryx Australia. I'm going to contact their fleet ex-fleet division because they had started opening up dealerships and yards and I knew one was coming to Gosford where obviously my business is based. So I picked my handbag up and I walked onto the, the dealership and I spoke to the, the national sales manager and said, who's writing your finance for your consumer customers? He was like a deer in the headlights. He didn't even think about it. He just thought people were going to come in, buy the car, sort out their own finance. So I put a, um, a proposal together. Again, I had more front than mine. So I put a proposal together. I got all three sites and I had their sites for 12 years, which fed my book and fed my client base. And now out of those clients, I'm seeing those clients' kids, because I'm old, I'm seeing those kids financing cars and homes and personal loans and things like that. So for me, it, it was partnering right. You need to look at who your partners are. You need to look at what that represents for your brand, your business, and what your business can give them. I actually gave Oryx Australia's three um, yards the ability to sell more units. I didn't go in there selling technically my brand. I went in there to sell their brand. Mm. And so it was a reverse engineer on how I managed to land that gig. So it was all about... How many units can they move off the yard by having an in-house F&I manager? Mm. And it proved to be a very worthwhile discussion. Exactly. I think I love that. And I think 
you know, in terms of talking about the opportunities, right? You're not selling on rate, you're selling on value. You're going to this potential business sort and you're saying, how can I add value to your business? Here's a solution that's going to allow you to sell a truck more, load more cars. Have you thought about this particular um, issue within your business? And I think you know, that's where a lot of brokers get it wrong, right? They, they go and they expect, um, you know, put their hand out and expect um, that particular referral partner or client to send the business, but they haven't provided the value in terms of to the other person, right? When it's always about them and what their needs are rather than the broker, right? Yes, the, the value will come as a... Um, as a, as a result for meeting their needs, right? Not the other way around. And I think too, Ross, you know what? I think brokers need to value their own time. They need to value what they bring to anybody's um, business. I remember when I first started doing home loans, I had other brokers saying, oh, we, we pay 30, 40 or 50% of our comm to real estate agents. And I looked at them and thought, God, I'm not doing that. Why? you know what, I'm going to show them how many more properties they can sell if their client is already pre-approved. If there's a client, I've got a client who I can get pre-approved, they're going to sell more houses. They're going to be coming to me. They're going to have a client who's looking but hasn't got finance. But if I'm sending them clients already pre-qualified, I'm going to start getting their business. So I never paid once to a real estate agent in all that time. They sent business to me because the value proposition of them getting 50% com on one deal or me closing their deals for them on finance was a better value. Oh, exactly right. Exactly right. There's so many synergies between us and the real estate agents, right? So much value that we can, that we can give and, uh, yeah, even like a listing, right? How many times do we speak to our existing clients and they say, oh yeah, I'm thinking of selling in the next 12 months, which is great, right? But it's an opportunity then for you to obviously give a listing away. And what's a listing worth to an agent, right? You know, it's big money, right? A lot of money. So, uh, you know, so many different ways that we can add value. And, you know, now- But I think the brokers need to understand what their value is. If you don't know what your value is, it's very difficult to sell it to somebody else. So it's getting that mindset right on their own value. You know what? You might not be the biggest mortgage broker in the country, you, but you have sustainability and your strike rate of getting a deal from application to settlement is very high and you only want to work with maybe, you know, a $2 million month. You, you might have four clients a month. That's all you need, but those four clients need to be landed. So your value proposition to an agent is that you have a good settlement ratio. Not too many of your deals fall over because you're doing your DD on the client. Oh, exactly right. Exactly right. And you know, that value proposition, you know, in the resi space is, is more important than ever, right? Because you know, you're not competing against the banks anymore. 70% of business is done. Um, by another broker. So if you can't differentiate your unique service proposition compared to the next broker, then how do you propose to complete? Because 
you know, just saying, oh, we've got a range of letters, it's not going to cut it anymore, right? Then you've got to have a point of difference and know what your value is. And something I teach a lot in my programs in terms of getting people clear, and you probably know what your value is, but you haven't taken the time to clearly articulate it, right? So you, you can't market it um, to somebody. And this is really what it comes down to. All right, love that. So then, um, you know, back to where you were in terms of growing your business. So when did you get back into mortgages? Oh, um, it, it's always been there in the back. Um, when I say um, get, I sold the book, so I couldn't get back into that for um, two years. And then I was just slowly uh, working my way with my clients that particularly wanted to deal with me. I didn't go looking for it. But of recent times, uh, five years ago, six years ago, uh, there was such a big push for it that I, I couldn't deny it anymore. Um, so I, I ended up putting a few team members on. I've got some offshore staff as well. And we service our client base. Um, I work on referrals from my clients. And to give you an idea, I have an active client base of 6,500. So we don't really need to advertise for much um, because we've got such a data-rich uh, system that allows us to farm from. So I think when you say, when did I get back into it, I never probably really left it other than for that gardening leave that I had to. And it was just looking after the particular clients that I wanted to look after without having to build out a team. But now I've had to build out a team, um, which take care of a lot of that side of my business. Yeah, love it, love it. So, yeah, the majority of the mortgage brokers do mortgages, but um, we were talking about the opportunity in the commercial space. And you mentioned uh, prior to us coming on air that you know the the market share for brokers in that commercial space is about twenty eight point four percent. From the ISS, uh, so IIS report that the MFAA have um, commissioned. It, it states it's about 28.8%. So it's still very low, um, considering that it probably could be um, up to 50 or 60%. Yeah. Because the potential's there. Um, but it's how mortgage brokers want to work in that space. And quite often, you might hear me say if you're a good mortgage broker, stay in your lane. Mm. Diversification is great, but it's how you diversify. What does that look like? Are you diversifying by partnering with someone who does equipment commercial? I do that very well with another broker, um, Tracy Curie out of uh, Queensland. And her brokers that don't want to write commercial lending want to partner right. So they partner with my business and we make sure that their client is serviced and well looked after. And always the head broker is that mortgage broker. The mortgage broker refers to me, which is a specialist in this lending. They're not losing the mortgage. They're not losing potential future business because they've stuffed up on a car loan. The deal's done, the deal's done right, and they still get kudos for it from their client, which is really important. Or you've got other brokers that do want to actually start writing the business. But you've got to decide which lane you're in. We can't be experts at everything. I can write a mortgage, but that's not my expertise. Yeah. And, you know, I found that and I stuck to, to my lane in terms of residential mortgages. And that was, you know, the, where I play. Because I, I, the, I, the thing that I noticed 
about you know equipment and, and commercial especially equipment and cars and so it's so fast right the speed of transaction compared to a mortgage is totally different right and you know when you're working on you know let's say you're working on a million dollar mortgage the obviously the commission rate is is higher and it's going to take you longer to put that so if you're in the middle of doing something like that and then a some one of your clients wants an asset deal and they want it now, right? That's what I found really hard. And we used to, similar to you, we used to have a tick and flick model that we would refer on. But just the, the speed of that transaction is totally different. Um, so I, I think it's very hard to... The headspace that, that transaction takes up. Mm. I, I quite often hear... Um, Brokers say, oh, that asset commercial is so quick and it's easy. Well, when they actually do one and your headspace is filled for the first four hours to get the deal done and dusted and settled within 48 to 72 hours and you've got half a dozen or more on the go, let me tell you, you've got to stay in your lane. Exactly right. Exactly right. So what would be your suggestions if um, brokers did want to... Um, you know, diversifying to get into asset finance? Would it be to get a specialist within their business to do it? Would it be to, as you said, look at opportunities to partner with people? What would be some options for people looking to, to go in that space? Well, probably my, my number one thing would be, you know what, if you want to get into that space, you need to understand it. Hmm. You need to get your head around some product first and understand the process. So you as a mortgage broker understand that process. And then from being able to understand what that process is, you would be looking at, well, what does my business model really want from that process? Do you want to employ more staff at a cost of an average um, asset broker is going to charge you out at 110 to 150 grand a year, okay? What revenue can you drive from that? So you're either going to have a, a PAYG model where you've got someone coming into your business representing your band as a PAYG. That brings a whole new demographic to the business and, and another expense. Or do you partner with an aggregator that has a tick and flick model? Who, who's your aggregator? Find out what they've got. And then if, if it's something that you have a, a, a different uh, feel for, you want someone who is an expert in it, will treat your client as you would, and you have a good working relationship, talk to that broker. So I've got, on average, about 26 referral brokers or mortgage brokers referring to our business because they like the personalised touch. Um, I think we have to, as brokers, because it is such a tactile business and we are talking to our clients on a regular basis, you don't want to lose that touch with your client. You don't want to flick it through a portal and then hear nothing again because you're going to lose the client. You actually have to maintain and retain. So if you're going to get into this space, understand if it's a tick and flick model through a portal, that client will not be loyal to you. If it's a tick and flick scenario to a partner, a business partner or a referral, that is going to have more loyalty and more retention. So you need to understand what your business looks like. Of course, you're going to have more retention if you've got a PAYG in your business. But again, that comes with added cost. And obviously the cost of employing people at the moment has risen. So does your business require or want that extra HR and cost? Um, yeah. My HR skills aren't, you know, fine-tuned. That's not my expertise. 
So I have someone look after my HR. So if you've got someone that does look after your HR and you're happy to employ, that's a pretty good model. But there's also better models out there that can streamline it without the angst. Exactly. I love that. And I love the way that you put that, right? By you put time, you add up the cost of staff, you add up the cost of the risk, and you look at the potential profit margin in it. Yeah, again, and if you put that time and energy into your core business, then, you know, what's the, what's the payoff? So I, I think there's, there's a lot of validity. 150 grand on an F&I rider or an equipment commercial rider, you're going to want three times the return. So you've got to look at how many, how many equipment loans do you have to do for that return? Yeah, exactly right. When it's not your core business and it's not going to be your core, you know, um, yeah, interesting. Interesting. So let's go back to that point. And we were talking about, um, and in this particular market, we're talking about the velocity of change. And we obviously heard a lot of the changes that you've been through in terms of starting your business, where there was no market to the GFC until where you are today. Um, one of the things that is constant is change. So talk to me on, on that point around in a market like this, what do people need to be doing to act on that velocity of change? Well, obviously, GFC brought a lot of technical, um, sorry, um, COVID brought a lot of technical change within banking systems, within how we transact with our clients, with portals and um, DocuSign and all of those sorts of things. So it, it's keeping on point with your aggregator and what they know, what the lenders are, are um bringing out for us. But I think probably the most important thing is, is know your customer, know who your future customer is. What does that look like? Because it's not just about today. It's about what's going to happen in the next three to five years. And a few years ago, I, I wrote an article and commissioned a survey about Gen Zers. Now, these are my future customers. I did this three or four years ago. They're only starting to come in now. And what I was looking at, and I was fortunate enough to have two teenage boys to use as a platform. Um, I, I basically looked at what their future needs were going to be. What does it look like for these Gen Zers coming through? So these Gen Zers are, are now looking at businesses that are carbon neutral, businesses that have sustainability, businesses that look after the environment, businesses that are community minded, whether it be a mortgage broker, an equipment broker or the local um, swimming pool builder. What are they doing for their environment? We've all been brought up in a, um, an era of care for one another and the planet. They're working in virtual tribes. So if you as a broker don't know what your future client looks like, you're actually going to be behind the eight ball as of today. So those things are what I think brokers need to consider first and foremost. Have a look at your client base. Map out what the next generation of 18 plus, what, what are they interested in? How do they work? You've got, we've got a whole generation that feel they don't need to come into the office. They can be anywhere in the world. They may want to buy a house in New South Wales, but they're working out of Mexico, Cancun. How are we going to get that to work? We can now because we have the ability to do so. But how do you market to those clients? What are they looking for? Technology? community engagement, and also caring for the environment and the situations that they find themselves in. So, again, it's knowing and understanding. It's not like it, it used to be just rate-driven. 
these guys aren't looking just for rate anymore. They're actually looking for who's going to finance me, what is their background, what, what do they represent, what do they stand for. So it's actually appealing to the individual's um, the, the individual psyche and what, what floats their boat. Yeah, love it, love it. And again, it's you know, people will you know um, pay more for a product that's going to meet their needs and that fits their values. So it's um, it's great looking at that. And in terms of looking at, obviously, you know we've got a market to the market that we're in, right? So what are some of the changes um, that you've done in terms of the way that you're marketing and attract clients um, over the last few months? You know what has changed within your business to to attract new clients? Um, my business has always done specialty lending, so I think that's one of the biggest things for mortgage brokers. They're not vanilla clients anymore. We've come off the back end of a pandemic. Small business operators don't have strong financials. I'm not saying all of them, but a vast majority don't have the strong financials that are required to borrow maximum. They have bumps and blisters for whatever reason because their businesses were shut down during COVID. They're still trying to recover. So I think as if we're going to be talking about mortgage brokers, I think we need to look at the point of view of what does that customer look like coming out of this um, pandemic? What is the majority on your books? Is the majority on your books um, self-employed, PAYG? There's a combination there. And I think once you've really dissected your demographics, that's going to lead you into the path that you need to be following. Mm. And also educating your clients. I, I think us as brokers have been able to steer our clients very well during these changes and make our clients feel like we're there for them with any questioning around what's happening. Um, so I, I think specialist lending for one is going to be a huge, huge advantage in the next two years. It's going to take a lot of small business, at least a minimum of 24 to 36 months to start getting back on their feet. But they're going to need our help now. We've got rising interest rates, cost of living, as we all know. What does that look like for cash flow? What does that look like for household? So, again, coming back to knowing your database and knowing your future database, you need to have those going hand in hand because you've still got to prepare for the future, but you've got to look at the here and now. Love it. Love it. So you said you educate your clients through the conversations that you're having with them. So does that mean you educate your staff around these things in terms of what's happening? Yeah. So I had Monday morning madness, and I'm sure everybody else does. So my Monday morning madness is getting my team together, looking at the files that we've got on the go, looking at what inquiry we've had in the last week, what direction from week to week our direction does change because it depends on the month, it depends on, um, you know, are we, we coming in towards the financial year or are we coming out of it to start a new financial year? So all those things change from week to week. And I think with my staff being um, involved in a lot of the conversation, so for me personally, this morning I went through 38 files with my team around me. They had to sit there and painfully listen to the phone calls that I made. Only reason being it gives them a broader view of where I'm guiding these clients, what they're looking for, 
and also an understanding on what the lenders I'm working with are requesting and how we get those deals to settlement. And I only do that once a week. Yeah. By the end of the week, I get another report from my team and we start again on Monday. Yeah, love it, love it. Is there any other ways that you educate your clients or it's more just done you know, through conversations with you and your client, with your, you and your staff? We do marketing campaigns and it's not just about product. Um, it can be about if, if there's change in your business or your family life, give us a call and we'll just review a couple of things that are going on. Um, we do get a lot of phone inquiry from my clients or an email saying, hey, Murray, rates went up. Have you got time to have a chat? So you do still have to pick up the phone. I have a, a, a strong uh, ethic in, in the sense of we need to make 18 phone calls minimum a day, and that's physical speaks. So whether it be to existing clients, future clients, what have you, we need to make sure that there is still constant conversation rolling. Love it. So, so that's 18 conversations per team member per day. Per day. Love it, right? This is old school and uh, comes My back. old school, but guess what? It works. Exactly. To is personalising it. Hmm. You know, when, when I finish a contract, and I send out the contract. We send out a contract to the accountant. I send out a big folder to my um, client with a handwritten envelope. It sounds so old school, but it's so good. Oh, again, but, and yeah, this is one thing that I teach, right? It's, uh, I call it the dollar productive activities. If you're not doing, in Mari's case, your 18 calls a day, you know, how much business are you missing, right? So from those 18, you probably get a hold of... Three. Yeah. Um, and again, right, so that's 50 a week that you're actually speaking to. That's, um, you know, that's 200 a month. That's I, mean, well, I set it at 18 because that's our magic number here, but you guys might set it at 10, hmm. right? And if you're still doing a one and three, that's a pretty good strike rate. And it, it's a case of it could be someone that rang me four weeks ago, just thinking, well, I'm going to ring them today and go, on that thought you had a couple of weeks ago, rates are changing. Maybe we should look at moving this purchase forward. What are your thoughts? Yeah. I've got car buying services. I've got these other services that plug into it. We can assist you in this. If you leave it any longer, rates are going to go up again. I don't have crystal ball, but everything's indicating it's going up again. So why delay the purchase? So you're bringing business forward yeah, I love that you've got those surrounding um, networks to make business easier as well right you've got the the what did you mention the car buying service what was the other service you mentioned so you've got car buying services or if someone's accountant's no longer their accountant we can refer them to an accountant you know what it's it's about a community and I call it working in virtual tribes too because we will introduce our clients to the right people like, again, you've got to stay in your lane but partner right, and that brings everything together. Yeah, love it, love it. It's, um, it's that collaboration to get business, right? Uh, to do business, not to get business, right? So around adding value to the client and sort of you know, networking to do business, not networking to necessarily get business. And you're, at, you're, you're adding a lot of value to your clients. So it's, you know what, Ross, I probably want to mention too, um, over the years, what I've seen is a lot of brokers will hold their businesses too tight in the sense of that they 
they're not sharing information with fellow brokers. And I think once you start sharing with fellow brokers, you have your little purple circle and you start sharing. I can ring up brokers anywhere in the country and go, hey, I'm having trouble positioning this loan. You, you've got a little bit more knowledge in this side of the business. Can you give me a hand? You know what? The best form of flattery is ringing a fellow broker to say, hey, I think you're a bit better at this than I am. Can you assist with a couple of tips on am I going in the right direction? I'm a great sharer in knowledge and it does come back to you mm. 10 times. So it, don't be afraid to share knowledge. Don't be afraid to ask a fellow broker for advice or help. I mean, I've got some really great brokers around the country and I'll pick up and go, oh, my God, I can't, I can't get this deal fit. Can you shine some light on it? It works for my client. It works for me. The other brokers are doing the same thing. So I think as brokers, if we stop being so precious about, oh, I'm going to ask everyone for help, get the ego out the way. We all meet one another during different courses of events or what have you. Go and introduce yourself to someone that you would like to meet but haven't. Don't feel that you can't. Even if you're a one-man band, go up to whatever broker you've seen in, in local media or media and go, hey, I've always wanted to meet you. I, I read an article about you last week. That is great conversation to get to know different circles within the industry. Yeah, and you and I have been in the industry for a long time, right? And one of the things that keeps us in this industry is the quality of people within the industry. And, you know, I can't say that I've met too many that have that ego that wouldn't help right most brokers that i know would be more than happy to collaborate and and share share knowledge there's only a few uh that wouldn't but most would right so i think that's a great sort of point in terms of you know that sort of collaboration with peers is is uh is a is a good one so um the other thing that I love about what you're doing is, you know, that that corporate responsibility that you have. And I know you're involved in a number of different things, extracurricular uh, type activities. So you want to just talk on that for me for a little bit? Well, the corporate social responsibility piece came about when I was um, researching my future client. And I got more and more interested in it and I, I got a better understanding on what it really means to the local community, what it really means to um, your individual clients. So I think that giving back piece is certainly one for any business, regardless of whether it's in our, our field, but any business giving back to local communities mm. um, certainly has good traction. I mean, don't go out there selling yourselves or what have you. You're actually going out there and, and performing a uh, community engagement of some sort. People will soon get to know who you are and what you stand for. And I think it's really important to show your local community that, you know what, I'm a future employer of one of your children. I'm the future employer of maybe a brother or a sister. And if I'm not, I might have someone in my space that is looking for somebody. So... Also, the, the biggest key thing for me is I really get involved in um, supporting disadvantaged youth and it has been something that, um, you know, gives me great satisfaction seeing that I can make a change 
and that change might be with one 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 individual over a course of you know two or three hundred I speak to but at least I've made that change with one so in one year I spoke to over four and a half thousand students and disadvantaged kids across Australia um, so that was a big ask um, but I was determined to do it and I worked with juvenile justice I worked with high schools that were feeder uh, schools to the immigration department, so new immigrants, teaching, not so much teaching, but showing them and pointing them in the right direction uh, of how to get a loan, what it looks like to get a loan, what it means to um, have a credit file, what does that do for you for future borrowings. So they're more lifestyle skill sets than lecturing what a broker does. Yeah. So to me, I think if, if you're spending an hour, even a month, if you give something back, and it doesn't necessarily have to be money, your time is more valuable than money. Mm. And your time gives you more traction if you're present. It's about being present. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I sort of went on a bit of a journey after my broken career and I travelled the world and I went to a number of different places. But what came out of it, and I even spent a few days with like the Dalai Lama in India, but... What are the messages that sort of came from that? And it goes along the lines of what you're saying is that, you know, your happiness doesn't come from, you know, serving yourself. Your, your happiness comes from giving back to others, right? And I know obviously running a, a broken business, having a billion dollar book and, you know, buying the properties, that extra property or that extra 100,000 isn't going to do it, right? Gets to that point in your business where, yes, you're comfortable, but these other things really give you that joy, right? It really makes you feel good um, to actually give a little bit. And as you said, like people, it's what people want. It's what people like as well, because they know that same feeling that comes from serving others. And, uh, yeah, so I love that. And it's a, and you know a great... what, Ross, our industry is a great industry to be able to, with the programs that I've written, I can't get to as many people as I can anymore. So I'm now showing other brokers how to enter into their communities and give back. So I will uh, talk with brokers at least two to, two, two to three times a week. I've got an appointment tomorrow on Zoom with a broker group that wants to know how to get into the community, whether it be through schools or youth centres or what have you, working with my program. So I'm going to dedicate now an hour and a half to them. So it's not just about um, getting into it's our community too. Hmm, we yeah. need to get involved in our own community of brokers yeah. and giving back to our community. Yeah, how good's that? Right? How good's that? You've developed, worked hard, you know, developing the program, and now you can then leverage this to other, yeah, to get other brokers to to use that and uh, give back, and that's that collaboration that you were talking about. I mean, we could actually go on and talk for hours, uh, Mari, but we don't have hours, so I want to wrap it up. Normally, I wrap it up by asking a question saying, look, if you were a broker who really wanted to scale and take your business to the next level, similar to the way that you have, what would be your one piece of advice for them? It's pretty, can't just be one piece, Ross, putting on the spot for okay. one piece. 
Um, I, I think actually if they've got a clear understanding of what their business represents and what lane they want to play in, I think as brokers, um, let's let's take fragments, like someone who's not a licensed holder who is a CRN under an aggregated group, they need to make sure that that aggregated group is the right business partner. Because if you don't have the right business partner, it's going to be very difficult to keep scaling because you're going to have back-end problems. Your back-end needs to be right. Your tools, your systems, tools of the trade, if you haven't got them right, how can you scale up? Love it. I think that's great. I think that's a, you know, a really good tip because your, your systems and your processes, the foundations that allow you to build and to scale and to scale with volume. And obviously you've done that well, having six and a half thousand clients. It's um, you, you've done that very, very well. So uh, thanks, Mari. It's been a pleasure having you on the Billion Dollar Broker podcast. Thanks. I'll talk to you later. I appreciate it. All right. Well, this has been another episode of the Billion Dollar Broker podcast. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on all the channels or you can go to the website, billiondollarbroker.com.au. Also there, you can see the different programs that we offer. And if you want to contact us about one of our programs, we'd be more than happy to have a chat with you. So thanks again, and we'll catch you next time.